Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg, and friends, in today's episode, Mariah Collins is going to be joining us to talk about incorporating equity into our nonprofit's measurement, evaluation, and learning. Mariah is a partner in the BridgeSpan Group's Boston office and co-leads BridgeSpan's measurement and evaluation and public health areas of expertise. During her decade-plus with the organization, Mariah has primarily focused on impact investing, measurement and evaluation, big bets, and public health. Mariah has supported nonprofits, philanthropy, and impact investing clients on measurement, evaluation, and learning, and also helped build BridgeSpan's toolkit on the subject that we're going to be talking about today, which is measurement, evaluation, and learning with a strong, strong equity lens. Mariah holds a master's of science degree as well as undergraduate studies in health policy, public health, and environmental studies. Hey, Mariah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Of course, of course. Well, I I loved your 11-page article, and and I absolutely have to recommend that all of our listeners go and check out that article. And of course, we're going to link to it in the show notes. But on page two of the article, you have a four-part diagram about what equitable measurement can look like. And I thought maybe let's start with the designing around engaging with constituents and communities. And you gave one example that really spoke to me and I think would speak to a lot of our listeners. And that's your example around Compass in Boston and Philadelphia. I'm happy to share more about Compass. And for those who are not familiar with Compass, Compass Working Capital is a Boston and Philadelphia-based nonprofit, and they focus on asset building. They support families that live in federally subsidized housing to build assets and financial capabilities as a pathway to greater economic opportunity. And they have a priority on serving Black and Latinx women. And I would say Compass is one of the leading nonprofits in the country and potentially in the world in centering equity in their measurement approach and really in their full program and operations. They are just a real standout on this dimension. Compass does a few things. I'll start first with their client advisory board because they really use this client advisory board as a way to center equity through their full measurement process. And essentially, they've taken a group of folks who they serve at Compass. Their clients are the ones that receive their services. And they have selected a handful of clients to be on this advisory board. And they use the board to do a number of things. First, they use the board to figure out what are the outcomes that actually matter to clients. So a big part of measuring with equity at the center is not just using the definition of equity that the nonprofit believes is important or funders believe is important, but the definition of impact that the clients, that those you serve, believe is important. So Compass uses that client advisory board to really understand what is the impact of our program for you and how can we come to a shared understanding and shared definition of that impact. So really from the beginning, they are engaging that client advisory board. And so talk to us about how they actually get that understanding of what's important to the person who you're hoping to make an impact with. So it's a conversation. It's a constant engagement process. It's having sit-down conversations. It's asking questions. It's actually taking surveys, outcome surveys, 
and putting those in front of the client advisory board and saying, what do you think of this survey? And just one example of that is the client advisory board actually looked at one of those outcomes survey and they said, you know, this is actually really focused on our coaches. It's not focused on us. We are the ones that you are hoping to impact and gave Compass that feedback and Compass adjusted the survey accordingly. And if I recall that article, I think I think initially what they were doing was having like a follow-up survey after every coaching session and was like, hey, how did the coaching session go? How was your coach? What did you think of your coach? And it was focused on, yeah, really that that staff person or contractor and not not the person you're hoping to make a benefit with or make an impact with. Exactly. And this is a really common theme with measurement for nonprofits. It's very focused on, well, how are we doing as a nonprofit versus what is the impact you're having in the world? And to be clear, that's often driven by funders and and this sort of historical feeling that you have to prove something to the world versus focusing on, well, actually what you need to prove is that you're having impact for those you serve. And I know you talk about that in the beginning of the article, really, that funders are almost like the the 8,000-pound gorilla, not even 800, but like 8,000-pound gorilla, because they're the ones who say, okay, you have to measure how you're doing nonprofit or we're not going to give you funding. Yes. You know, this is one of the biggest challenges that we run into when working with nonprofits on measurement, evaluation, and learning is how do you work with funders who have these really stringent requirements? Then I'll say two things about that. The first is that I do think more and more we're seeing funders really open to a dialogue around MEL, especially if nonprofits are leading with the goal of centering equity more in their measurement approach. So one is I would say, do attempt to engage with funders. We found some funders are really willing to work with a nonprofit on this topic. And second, I would say that in some cases, there are some reporting requirements, especially with certain funding pools and just figuring out how do you right size as a nonprofit your investment in that so that you're saying there are a few boxes we have to check and we will check those, but that's not going to be where we invest the bulk of our measurement resources. And so, Mariah, I have an important question that I think a lot of our listeners are probably wondering as well. So I know that you're in a unique position at BridgeSpan because you all work with nonprofits. You also work with funders and impact investors. So for that nonprofit that is going to approach a funder and say, hey, we kind of feel like the measurement and evaluation tools that you're requiring we use don't really don't really measure what we should be. How do you start that conversation? It really has to be a dialogue. So I would say bringing to that conversation examples of the ways that the nonprofit believes measurement could be more effective, and then the evidence that suggests that it can lead to just as much impact, if not more impact, is really the key to success in those conversations. So using the resources that exist out there to prove that centering equity actually can give you better results. So The Equitable Evaluation Initiative, for example, the Fund for Shared Insight is another example. These are resources that are really tailored to the funder community that speak funder speak and can essentially say, you know, look, making these changes can be beneficial to everybody. And so it's interesting because I think kind of what I hear you saying is in terms of the people that an organization is serving, start around engaging those constituents or those communities. But in terms of funders, maybe it is having that conversation of, hey, can we talk about what matters? 
Exactly. And I think, again, centering, let's talk about what matters to our constituents and our communities and why we do the work that we do every day and why actually focusing on these set of measures will lead us to have greater impact over time. I think most funders tend to get behind that message. Yeah. And I I know when in your article and you were talking about defining what matters and really measuring that and then investigating it, um, you used several good examples, but you used Compass again, that that Boston and Philly-based organization. Can you share what Compass is doing around defining what matters and then how they measure and investigate it? Absolutely. So it is really about using that client advisory board to determine the specific outcomes that matter most. So again, it's that conversation around how do we think about the impact of our program? And it isn't just about having a successful conversation with a coach, for example, but was somebody able to put a down payment on a house? Was somebody able to build their credit score over time? And I think that credit score is a really interesting example because Compass was, for the most part, actually more focused on some of those ultimate outcomes. So how much money was going into a savings account and what was able to happen in that person's life as a result of the savings account. And what they learned from the client advisory board was actually credit score is a really meaningful intermediate outcome for clients. It enables them, it essentially unlocks a level of access to financial support that they did not have before. So because of the conversations with their clients, they said, gosh, we are going to actually intentionally measure credit score as an intermediate outcome. So that's just one example of Compass having that conversation, learning something from their clients, and actually changing the specific outcomes that they measure as a result of that conversation. Mariah, part of what I love about what you just said, I I know later in the article, you also talk about the importance of qualitative data, but funders are all about the quantitative. And there is nothing more quantitative than your credit score. Exactly. It is something that can be measured over time. And, you know, it's really an important point with the qualitative piece because there is such a bias historically towards quantitative data. And even us at Bridgepan have made the point in the past to really emphasize randomized controlled trials, for example, as the gold standard. And what we now believe and and what we're really clear with our clients about is that there's different levels of gold standard evidence and qualitative data can be a really meaningful part of that story. So yes, the credit score is a great quantitative example, but don't want to lose the importance of qualitative data as well. And as long as we're talking about kind of that gold standard of, okay, it's almost like a clinical trial for a pharmaceutical company. um, I also like that in the article, you really talked about how that if that's what we're going to require, if that's what funders are going to require, or we're going to view as a best practice or leading practice in the nonprofit sector, then that bakes inequity into the nonprofit sector because smaller organizations can't ever do that. We at Bridgepan wrote an article on barriers to capital, and it emphasizes the inequities that exist in the nonprofit sector for leaders of color. So leaders of color are historically underfunded organizations that are serving BIPOC individuals are largely underfunded. So if you are essentially putting a gold standard that is unachievable for organizations that are underfunded, then it is, like you said, it is just baking in inequity. It is this perpetual cycle of inequity in the nonprofit sector. An example that I've sometimes given to boards is it's almost like saying to someone, okay, when you can run a marathon, I'm going to give you enough food. Yep. Great. Exactly. (laughs) You're never going to run a marathon. (laughs) So 
we really want to emphasize that there are times and examples where randomized controlled trials are necessary and powerful. And as you mentioned, I have a public health degree, so we can just say COVID vaccines, for example, or any sort of vaccine trial, it's critical to use a randomized controlled trial. And that is not the case in the social sector. There are certain programs where it is important, and there are many programs where you can actually get a very high level of evidence without ever doing a randomized controlled trial. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And much like the vaccine example you gave, also really, if you think about equity in terms of vaccine hesitancy, because all we do is measure, okay, who's, who's hesitant, who won't get vaccinated for COVID, that doesn't really help us. We do have to kind of define what matters. Why won't they get vaccinated? And what can we do to move that needle? Exactly. And this really gets to our point around data disaggregation. And essentially, if you're looking at your data as one big group or one big community, you're going to miss some really important nuances that are going to help you drive to have more impact over time. So we really can't overemphasize enough the importance of disaggregating your data across many dimensions and race and ethnicity is a really critical part of that. And we found that nonprofits that take that extra step to disaggregate their data are actually then able to bake in what we call curb cut effects. So essentially, if you are designing for the most marginalized individuals in your program design, everyone is going to benefit. But you may not actually know who the most marginalized individuals are for your program or what is needed unless you take that step to look at your data by different subgroups. It's interesting you say that because one of the things I was really struck by, often when we think about disaggregating data, we do think around those demographics, gender, gender identity, race, ethnicity, et cetera. But you talked about a really interesting disaggregation, which was a housing organization that said, hey, we should really disaggregate based on are they in housing authority provided housing? Are they in a voucher housing with a private landlord or neither? And that is another fantastic compass example where they essentially said, we are going to disaggregate across where our clients actually live and see if there are meaningful differences. And, and that is where I would just encourage creativity. And as a nonprofit, you know your clients, you know your con uh, constituents, you know your communities really, really well. And just encouraging creativity with disaggregation and, and figuring out what are your own hypotheses that you can test and then how can you cut the data to try to understand what might be happening? You mentioned that that's something that Compass did. And so what did Compass learn when they when they said, okay, let's look at those that are in traditional public housing, those that are in vouchers, and those that get vouchers, and those that get neither? They learned that there were meaningful differences in their outcomes and their impact. And then they were able to adjust their programs accordingly to better serve each of those different subgroups. So again, just really taking the time to do that further investigation. And then a huge part of centering equity and measurement and really any MEL approach is learning and continuous improvement. So it's really important to identify the differences and outcomes from different subgroups like voucher versus subsidized housing. But what is equally important is to say, how are we going to take that information and actually change our programs as a result? And I will just give uh, a different example with CAMFED, which is an organization that is based in Sub-Saharan Africa. And they are focused on helping girls go to school and learn and thrive and lead change for their families and communities. 
And what CANSAD did essentially is they looked at their data and they had a number of hypotheses that emerged from that data. They cut the data a number of different ways. And then instead of just themselves sitting around a table and saying, what should we do with this information? How do we improve our programs? They brought together groups of community members at the individual schools and they said, how can we work together to address these solutions? So one of the things they found in their data was that girls were skipping school. And so instead of brainstorming themselves, what are the solutions to to avoid that from happening? They sat down with parents, teachers, and actually with the students and came up with a set of solutions. Mm. And so, Mariah, that really gives me the opportunity to drive home and emphasize something else that you really brought up in the article, which is after you have these learnings, engage your clients to drive change. Yes. So CAMFED is is a great example where essentially they said, let's take what we are learning and, and make it a school dialogue. And this is just, again, one example where you say, how do we take this information and how do we actually apply it into our programs? And I can actually give another example that I think really drives this point home, um, which is Noble Schools. So Noble is a charter school network. They are based in Chicago. They serve over 10,000 students. And essentially, they have this fantastic tool that they have developed called their Equity Index. And they take their equity index and they look at a whole set of variables that they believe drive student outcomes. And they look at those variables and they use them for each school. And instead of penalizing schools that have challenging scores on the equity index, they actually double down and really invest in those schools. So this is an example where they say, we are collecting this data school by school based on our equity index. And then we are going to make resource allocation decisions as a result of those scores. So what they are actually doing is saying, we know that this school is struggling on the following dimensions. They may not have enough diversity in their staff. So they have identified that, then they are going to allocate resources to make sure that they are hiring and retaining staff of color. Another example for Noble is, A school may be in a neighborhood where there is a lot of crime or there is a lot of challenges actually outside of the school. So they may invest in getting extra supports to help clean up the neighborhood, help position some folks so that when students are walking to school, that they are feeling safe as they are doing that. So essentially using the information to drive resource allocation and program level decisions in partnership with the community is really the goal of that part of the process. And I just think it's so strategic as well. Instead of saying, hey, let's starve the struggling schools, the struggling organizations, let's feed them so they can succeed. That's awesome. Exactly. And it really is, again, this idea of you're not blaming schools, you're not blaming students for systemic racism. And this is very much what happens in the social sector, is you look at data and you say, well, white students, for example, are are having higher performance on certain metrics. And, and then that's sort of used as a baseline where you're taking students of color and comparing them to white students. That's because a system has been created for students that are white to succeed. So really breaking down those the that process and saying we should not be comparing to a baseline of white students, for example. There are structures and systems that have created inequities. 
And stripping that out of a measurement process can be a really powerful way to, again, center equity and ensure that you're not actually reinforcing stereotypes and stigmas that are a result of systemic racism. And I know you really, really underscore that in the article where you talk about it with Noble Schools, looking at those external factors. And, and there's actually a great line there where, where you're very clear, those external factors are not the quote-unquote fault of the students or the administrators or the teachers. Those are external factors we just have to account for. Yeah, exactly. And measuring systemic factors alongside population-level factors or alongside community-level factors or alongside student factors in the case of Noble will help illuminate what are the factors that your program can directly address and what are some of those systems-level barriers that potentially your organization can play a role in addressing in a different way. And just being able to name those, again, can be really powerful so that you can understand what your sphere of influence is. And then potentially as an organization, you know, many nonprofits are thinking about both direct service and systems change these days. And Compass is a, is a great example of that as well. So how do you actually think about, you know, if your ultimate mission and goal is to impact the lives of a certain group of individuals, maybe there are systems level levers that you want to explore alongside. Absolutely. And the the last one, I want to make sure we have time to get to this. The last one you talk about is sharing those insights and keep engaging. And I'm assuming that is beyond just that advisory board. So engaging the constituents and the people who get some benefit from your program, but not just the advisory board. What does that look like? Absolutely. So that can take a number of different forms. So that could be something as simple as putting an impact report on a website and just knowing that anyone who goes on your organization's website can see this information. It may be really intentionally distributing the information to clients or your constituents. So you may actually hand them physically something and say, here's what we learned last year. We'd love any thoughts that you have. It may be holding a set of focus groups in the community to continue to piece apart what you've learned in your measurement process and hypothesize and drive change. It can really be, again, right size to the organization and fit to where the organization is. But the idea is that you're not just keeping this information and decisions in-house, but you're engaging the community and figuring out uh, ways that you can have more impact. And one more point I'll make on this is that measurement itself can be time-consuming and burdensome. So it's really important to understand how much time is this actually taking and are all of these outcomes that you are collecting worth the investment? And that's a place in particular where Community members, those who you've actually engaged in the past in surveys, for example, can provide some really meaningful feedback as well. I could not agree more. The organizations, especially the relatively small organizations that will say, oh, we're measuring and tracking 50 data points. Great. You're a small organization with 10 staff. What are you going to do with those 50 data points? Exactly. And this, again, that is a very common theme that we see is that organizations really aim to just sort of collect everything and then see where there's impact. And you know that is an important part of the learning process, but it's not the only part of the learning process. And what we found is that the organizations that have the most impact are, again, figuring out what matters most to constituents, narrowing in on the few set of indicators that actually matter, and then investing more deeply in those indicators. You may actually end up spending the same amount of money 
or even less if you're measuring five things very well versus trying to measure 50 different things. Mm -hmm. So speaking of impact and focus, that is a great segue to the golf map question. So Mariah, I am aware that you have three children who are all under the age of five. And as someone who is becoming a foster parent of a teenager and looking at this and going, how, how do parents do this? I'm really curious, how do you balance the demands of being a partner at BridgeSpan, which is a pretty demanding, impactful position with your family obligations? Oh, that is a great question. And one that I think about every single day. I, you know, I would say three things. The first is Richpan, one of Richpan's co-founders, Tom Tierney, who was uh, the managing partner at Bain and Company and then started Richpan. He really emphasizes this idea of work-life integration, which is something that uh, as I've become the parent of three young kids have really learned to embrace, which is you work when you can and you parent when you can, and you really sort of do them in a way that there isn't a hard start and a hard stop to your day, but rather each day you sort of wake up and you have a set of things that you're prioritizing and, and you figure out how to set them in. So sometimes that means I'm working at 7.30 at night, but I made the choice to pick up my uh, son or daughter at three o'clock in the afternoon. So it's making those trade-offs every day and and sort of feeling at peace with being able to make those choices. And then the second is I have a village. I have, uh, my parents are actually a five minute walk from where we live uh, and are very active and engaged with our kids and we could not do it without them. And then the third is that I love what I do. You know, I love my job. I, I love my kids. I wake up every day and I feel like I uh, am doing things that I enjoy doing, even though to be clear, both are very hard at points. And it, it just, you know, it gives the energy to to really be able to focus on on both right now. And Mariah, thank you. I, I want to thank you for sharing that with our listeners, but especially with me. Um, I need that level of counseling right now. So thank you so much. <laughs> Take all the help you can get. <laughs> exactly. Well, Mariah, thank you so much for coming on. I'm grateful. And of course, we always want listeners to be able to reach out to you. So I, there's a few URLs I want to share. The first is you can go to bridgespan.org, and there you can find toolkits for nonprofit leaders to really focus on centering equity. The second is equitableeval.org, which provides really leading thought on measuring for equity. We are also, because we've talked probably more about Compass than any of the other organizations that are profiled in the article. So in addition to linking to the article, we're also going to put a link to Compass because, you know, Mariah said they're probably doing this better than almost anyone else that, that she's aware of. So let's make sure that we check that out as well. Mariah, thank you for joining us today. I learned a lot and I know our listeners did too. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. All right, listeners, don't forget if you're in the car, on the subway, somewhere else, and you're like, dang, I did not get those URLs down, you can always go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com, which I am feel confident, and I smile and almost laugh when I say this, I feel confident is bookmarked in your favorite website ever. So you can always go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com. Go to the show notes, and you can get all of those URLs. Additionally, if you found this episode a useful one, if you thought, yeah, we need to be thinking more about equity and we need to be thinking more about evaluation, 
in our organization, there's two other episodes you should consider. First, you're going to have to go in the Wayback Machine to go to episode 184, and that's Understanding Your Impact Through Monitoring and Evaluation with Amanda Woomer. And the second is episode 214, Gender Matters in Philanthropy with Jeannie Sager. And finally, listeners, I have a sincere request of you. If you have listened to a few episodes or you've listened to many episodes of the podcast and you really like it, please, please subscribe. If you've already subscribed, rate and review it on your podcast streamer of choice. And if you've already done that, share it with a colleague or a friend. That, my friends, is our episode for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And friends, the lawyers have been making me say this since I think we started the podcast in 2016, and I'm a little tired of saying it, but if I don't say it, they tell me I can't do the podcast. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This should be no surprise. I say it every week. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and that means it should not be relied on for tax, legal, and accounting advice. Please don't get that kind of advice from a podcast. If that's what you need, find a licensed, qualified professional that specializes in exactly the type of counsel you need and reach out to them. And if you're not sure what type of professional you should be talking to or you don't know someone in your area, you can always reach out to me. I'm happy to help you figure that piece out.